sermon series probably, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And we've been going through somewhat in detail, although we could have spent much more time, the confession of Peter and what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And today we're going to look at verses 17 through 20, but we will read the whole paragraph starting in verse 13. This is God's word for our comfort, God's glory, and our good. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, replied rather, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Please pray with me. Lord God, we we come before you insufficient. And as Brother Joey uh, so aptly said this morning, God, um, I come before you too stupid to be a man. Um, Ignorant, God, of your word in many ways. But Lord, we trust you by your spirit that you will help us as we try to understand your word. I pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted and magnified by your spirit. I pray you'd fill me to speak only what is true. And uh, mostly, God, that Jesus Christ would be made much of. This can only happen by your Spirit, Lord. And we, we beg you for it today. And we pray and hope in you alone. Please, God, teach us your word for our good and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <coughs> One of the stages that we went through in parenthood probably a month or two ago, was in uh, putting Charlotte to bed at night. She would, she would ask us many questions. Uh, she was trying to stay awake, I, I have no doubt, and trying to keep us in the room. So I don't, I don't know if I accept the piety of some of her questions. What is the spirit? What is a flower? All these kind of things. But one of the things that she asked me that comes to mind as we come to this text is she would ask us, after we would pray that God would protect us as we sleep, she would ask me, are, are you watching over me while I sleep? Are you and mommy protecting and watching over me? And I would assure my daughter, yes, of course. Your mom and your dad are here, and we are here to protect you in the night. And I, I at least surmise that as my daughter closed her eyes to go to sleep, as a young child in the dark in her own room, that perhaps she would repeat to herself the assurance that her father gave her that I'm here, I'm watching over you, I'm protecting you, you can go to sleep, you can rest. Somewhat the same thing is going on in our text, but on a much grander scale. Our brother, Jesus Christ, our father, the father, the spirit who is sent by both of them, surely watches over us. And Jesus, after Peter gives this great confession... He gives three assurances to the church of God. As Jesus approves Peter's confession, he promises the perpetuity 
the authority of the church that he is going to build upon Peter and his confession, as we will see. And so, I want us to see, as we read this text, why would the Holy Spirit include this in the Scriptures? I, I think I could tell you today, the purpose is to assure us. To assure us, first, of the blessedness of those who make this confession. Second, it's to assure us of the perpetuity of those who make this and the continuance of those who make this confession. And thirdly, it assures us of the divinely given authority to those who make this confession. Okay? So, let's examine those each in their place. First, this text is given to, for us to be assured of the blessedness of those who rightly confess Jesus Christ. Now, what I want us to see is that you are blessed, not because of anything you've done, but because of the gracious revelation of God in Christ. Now, if we've been here long enough, and we know our Bibles, we know that one of the attributes of our God is He is a God in relation to, his, to us, His creation, that reveals Himself. He delights to reveal Himself. And He reveals Himself in a number of ways, primarily two. We know that general revelation, that is the world that was created by God, is a medium by which God reveals Himself to His creation. And it's a wonderful medium. As we, we look at the beauty of nature, we can see something of the beauty, the, the intelligence, the wisdom of God the providence of God. Psalm, one, uh, sorry, Psalm 19 states it beautifully that the heavens declare the glory of God. Night by night, they reveal knowledge. And day to day, they pour out speech to us, right? God reveals Himself to us in the creation. Now, Romans chapter 1, that we've read many times, but it's worth repeating... In verses 19 through, 20, 19 through 20, we have Paul writing, For what can be known about God is plain to them. That is all humanity. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that are made so they are without excuse. If any man says, I can't know that there is a God in heaven, we can point to Romans 1 and say, the Bible tells us that is not true. God reveals Himself clearly every day. And even as Calvin says in the Institutes, even a blind and deaf man that can't see the creation or hear anything that's going on, because he is a part of creation... And he examines his own heart and his own soul. He can know something about God even in the things that he sees in this world. But the thing about general revelation to sinners like us is we know it's not enough. Even if I was removed all the, the effects of sin from my mind, which will not happen, and I was able to clearly perceive nature and know that there's a God, truly, and I could reason it out what he is like in his nature... 
it would never show me how I can be made right with him. It could never show me how my sins can be taken away. It could only show me my guilt. And so God in his grace, we know, gave us a second form of revelation, didn't he? He gave us the Holy Scriptures. He gave us special revelation. He sent prophets and apostles to show us the plan of God in Jesus Christ. And even in the garden, in paradise, after we first sinned on that very day, God showed us that there is going to come a man born of a woman that will take away all of our sin. He showed us through the first five books of Moses, through the prophets and in the Psalms, what this mediator was going to look like. And when we open the pages of the Bible, we meet face to face the Word of God sent from Him to be the salvation for sinners. How He died on the cross to take away all the curse of the law and lived a perfect life so that we can live before God. But that data, the special revelation of God, isn't enough. Now, it's, it's sufficient for us to know, but it's not enough to enliven my heart to faith. It's not enough to put before a sinner true and right things and expect him to respond appropriately, is it? If that were the case, everybody that's ever heard a Christian sermon would be saved, wouldn't they? But that's not enough. It's not enough. And so, as Peter confesses this great confession, and I don't know if there was pride in Peter's heart in confessing this as if Peter thought, look what I've discovered. But Jesus Christ makes a point to say to Peter, first negatively, that you did not come by this confession You did not rightly say this confession because of flesh and blood. Notice that in verse 17. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for the reason you're blessed is because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's almost as if he's saying, Peter, I want you to mark this down before I go any further. It is not your intelligence It's not your ability to rationalize and think through the issues of why you can confess me to be the perfect mediator sent from God. It's not your piety, Peter. It's not because you're so holy that you just grasp these things intuitively. Because in yourself, Peter, you would never have confessed this. Your belief in me and all of you here today, your belief in God, and if you can confess what Peter confessed, is from grace and grace alone by your Father in heaven's good gift. Now, the truth of this is, is overwhelming to us, isn't it? That we were, we were once blind, darkened, and as a, the hymn paints the picture, in a dungeon, shackled with no light and nothing to give, but God's light pierced through to us. <coughs> and if we need a little more convincing of this, Just think of the scriptural terminology that's used of you before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You are described as blind. Unable to see what is truly there. Blind and dead in your trespasses and sins. You're unable to respond to God's truth. Well, I should say unable to respond appropriately. Right? You heard God's truth and you responded to it, but it was only with hatred towards Him. It was only with trying to hide your sins from him. 
Blind and dead describes us prior to our conversion, but what describes us after our conversion? Or rather, what describes us to be able to even come to Christ? We must be born again. Even to see. Again, notice the words of perception that are used. To see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 6 and a number of other areas, what does the scripture say about you? You're a new creation. These things describe our nature to confess Christ rightly. So, as we think about this, what what does it take to confess Jesus rightly? Well, it's not our flesh and blood. It doesn't take just a little bit cleaning up of our morality or maybe a, a little bit more correct thinking about the things of God. You have to be remade. You have to be a completely different person in order for you to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is why God's converting work upon the soul must take place prior to us having faith in Him. Because we would never do it. We would never see Him rightly. Uh, And a a text that wonderfully shows this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to ask you to turn there just so you can worship God with me as we read this text. As we think about, it is not flesh and blood that makes me come to a faith in Jesus Christ by His own gracious work. I want us to see that God views this as such a miracle that Paul uses words of creation. Creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Notice in verses 3 through 6, and even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And that was your situation. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, notice, who said, let the light shine out of darkness in Genesis chapter 1 has shown in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So much were you in need of God's gracious act towards you to rightly perceive Christ that he had to, like in creation, say, let there be light in that dark, ignorant, stupid heart. God had to do it. It is not from you that we confess Jesus Christ. It is only because of God's merciful, creative Power towards you. And I hope we see that today. That's the, the first thing that, that Paul, or I'm sorry, that Jesus tells Peter here. That it's not of himself, but of God alone. But this is given for us today. Not to be assured of how ignorant we were before and how God has made us a new creation. We dare not skip past that first word, do we? Be assured of your blessedness. Be assured of your blessedness. Now, it's an amazing thing and a wonderful thing that Jesus, the first words out of his mouth are, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. People like you and me and people like Peter, naturally born cursed. He says here that they are blessed. That is, Christ not only tells Peter how he came to this right confession, that God illumined his heart, but he tells him 
what condition he's in, what state of being he is in. He's blessed. God's face shines upon you, Peter. Now, you might recall going through the Beatitudes, this word blessed is used over and over. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, and so on. This Greek word makarioi, okay, it means to be happy, to be congratulated, okay? One worthy of congratulations. And this is what is being said here. You are in a happy state. As we said before, this doesn't mean that you necessarily have happy emotions all the time, okay? But your condition is a happy condition. It's a happy condition. And, and we, we must know this and cling to it. <clears throat> there is no demographic of people on this earth, rich, poor, white, black, whatever it might be, that is in a better state or is better off than you who believe in Jesus Christ. It's true. It's true. We ought to mark it down. Your sins are forgiven through your perfect mediator. He is the Christ. He is your prophet, priest, and king. And if that is true, you can add nothing to his righteousness and you can't take away anything from it because of your sin. You have an inheritance uncorrupted and undefiled waiting in heaven for you because he has purchased it for you. No matter the struggles and trials that we go through in this life, no matter the doubts of our heart and our mind, Jesus pronounces upon Peter that he is blessed because his Father has revealed these things to him. Saving faith has been wrought in the heart of Peter. And and brothers and sisters, I would tell you that this truth can make us have joy in the midst of sorrow and hardship. It can make us have joy in the midst of sorrow and hardship. It is a lie of my own heart and your own heart when we are tempted to depression and despair to let our hearts sink so low that we feel like we have no hope. The Bible, no matter how we feel, shows us we are blessed and we can cling to this truth. And I I would even tell you today, there's a direct correlation to the joy that you have in Christ. I'm not talking about just happy feelings, okay? Joy that you have in Christ and how much you really believe this truth. Do you sit here today and you can say in your heart, not only that Christ makes the elect blessed, but I am blessed because I believe in Jesus Christ. If there's not joy in that, then you're not believing it. Then you're not believing it. God shines on you. As Brother Joey read in Isaiah 54, he was once angry with us and he's no longer angry. What a wonderful fact that is. He's our husband and our maker. He will never take away his covenant towards us. Not only that, rejoicing in this truth that keeps us safe. And we see in Philippians 3, He says, finally, my brothers, almost to say, I want to make sure that you see this. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me. And it is safe for you. (coughs) We're tempted all the time to unbelief, to sin, and to doubt. And the one thing that Paul tells us keeps us safe is to rejoice in Jesus Christ and to rejoice that he has put us in a blessed condition. And we are to grow in this belief and to be convinced that these things are 
true. And I'd ask you today, are you convinced that if you confess that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of the living God sent for you, that you're blessed in a blessed condition? But Jesus, unbelievably, doesn't stop with just that assurance given to us that we are in a blessed condition. Rather, He wants us to go forward and see that we should be assured not only of our state before God, but be assured of the perpetuity of those who make a right confession of Jesus Christ. Notice this in verse 18. I'm going to read through this text again. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This blessing continues, doesn't it? We're blessed Blessed people, not just Peter individually, but corporately. The church that Jesus Christ is building with spiritual stones, that's believers who are blessed because of this confession. It's never going to be taken away, never destroyed. And we have a lot to deal with in this text. First, we have to ask what is the rock that Christ builds this church upon? Okay? And it It's no doubt that because of Roman Catholicism, we have to deal with this question, right? And even as we read this text, I have a feeling many of you in your minds are forming arguments of what to say because the first and baseline reading of this text without any context of other scripture is that Peter is the rock that the church is built upon. Now, What I say is a foundational reading of this text, and I don't mean that this is completely wrong, as I hope we'll see, but the wording here is important. So, he says, you are Peter, that is Petros in Greek, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. It's an obvious reading in the Greek that there's some kind of wordplay that Jesus Christ is using to build his church. Now, the, the Catholic interpretation of this, and I, I don't mean this uh, to be nasty, I just mean it to be truthful, is nonsense. That this is instituting Peter as the first Roman pontiff that is establishing an apostolic succession, and that upon the Pope is the foundation of the church. That's certainly wrong. Certainly wrong. And we could give lots of arguments, but that is not our primary reason we're here today. We could see Peter is the rock is one way that we can look at this text. That is, Peter is the rock alone or a combination of the next two. The second (coughs) is that Christ is the rock that the church is built upon. And some commentators would say, well, it's possible that Christ pointed to himself and said, I am the rock that the church would be built upon. Certainly possible. Nowhere in our text does it say that. It seems a little speculative to me. But it's certainly true. Certainly true. That Jesus Christ is the rock that the church is built upon. Well, how do we know that? Well, first, in 1 Peter 2, he quotes, in verse 6, uh, Isaiah 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That God clearly says that Christ is the rock that the church is built upon. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11 says, No one can lay a foundation other than what is laid, 
which is Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, it's certainly true that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, and we can't get away from that once we go out of the context of Matthew 16. But this interpretation by itself, I think it ignores the clear statements that we see in Matthew chapter 6 of Petros and Petra. You are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. Now, the third option (coughs) is probably more common in circles like ours, that the rock is the confession that Peter gives himself. That is, whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, this confession is the, the foundation and rock that the church is built upon. Now, again, this has an obvious ring of truth to it as well, doesn't it? Our religion is founded upon a right confession of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for sinners. Nobody ought to enter into membership in any Christian church without a recognition that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We all confess he is the perfect mediator and perfect God and perfect man. Again, this ignores the wordplay that Jesus uses, Petros and Petra. But, there's a ring of truth to all three of these things. And I think, and I'm going to propose to you today, that Jesus is not assuring us of individually one of these aspects, but rather, and this is the best language I could come up with, He assures us that Christ builds His church upon the apostolic confession of Jesus Christ. I'm going to state that again. Christ built his church upon the rock, which is the apostolic confession of Jesus Christ. And I believe that this brings together all the elements that we've been discussing. First, it's apostolic. Now, Peter stands up and is Chrysostom, the early preacher in, I believe, the third century A.D., He says that Peter stands up for the apostolic choir here and confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And Jesus assures Peter as the leader of the twelve, but he's referring to the whole, that upon the rock of your confession, Peter, this apostolic confession, I'll build the church. And this is somewhat a common way of speaking, okay? Sometimes we'll refer to one person but we're really referring to the whole, right? I, I don't even like the language of this, but we do it all the time. We might say, uh, I'm going to Pastor Josh's church today. Or, I went and saw Pastor Josh today. And what I meant is I went and I worshipped with the whole community of that church, and we used the leader of that church as a figure or a name for it. And I want us to see that rather than this being an invention of my mind that I made so that I could tie all these things together, I want you to turn to a couple passages, primarily Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. That the New Testament itself, when it describes the foundation of the church, it describes Christ being the cornerstone, but also it describes the apostles being a foundation as well. And while you're turning there, you might think of it as a modern building, that often if you're building a house, you have a footer poured, you know, this is a deep concrete layer, but then you have the foundation of the house laid on top of it, 
And that's much the symbolism that we see here. Ephesians chapter 2, notice in verses 19 through 21, writing to Gentiles, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens and saints and members, notice the language of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And we might even go further. In Revelation 21, in verse 14, it says, In the wall of the city, the new Jerusalem, the church, had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Okay? And what I'm proposing is if we take all of Scripture together and see what is the rock that Jesus Christ built His church upon. The rock is Jesus Christ and the apostolic confession and writings that come from them. And I believe that this brings together all of these truths. As Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, when we turn to the rest of the pages in the New Testament, what we see is a greater filling out and explanation of that confession. We go throughout the New Testament and the purpose of it is to tell us who Jesus Christ is and what He requires of us as His people. Now, I think this is helpful because this is not an apostolic foundation without the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Rather, throughout the New Testament, the apostles are constantly pointing back to Christ and showing us who He is Eh, Nor is it a foundation without a confession. Rather, we must and do all confess (coughs) that everybody that is added to the new temple of the Lord must say amen to the apostolic confession about Jesus. This is a mark of all saints that they agree with what the Word of God confesses. And this is what the church is built upon. Now, Having dealt with that debate, and whether you agree with me or not on that, the main point here is to give assurance to us. We're assured that we're blessed, and that blessedness flows out into this promise that the church that he builds will never be destroyed. Never be destroyed. Hell will never prevail against the church. And again, there is much debate on whether, whether the church is portrayed here as an aggressive, okay, an aggressive people expanding to the ends of the world. You know, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is, we're fighting against hell. We're going into hell's territory, and they have gates set up, but they won't prevail. There's also, I think, very reasonable debate that hell is coming against the church, and the, the world's advances and aggression towards the church will not be successful. Now, whether one of those is true and the other one is false, I don't know. But the main priority is not taken away from this text. That the forces against the church are far too powerful for us in our flesh and blood. Hell itself cannot prevail against us. We think about the devil who is referred to as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, as Leviathan, an ancient serpent. How dare we think that we can in our own power go out 
and save souls. How dare we think that that kind of power seeking to rip apart the church wouldn't be successful? But Jesus Christ promises that although the church will be in peril and attack from forces that are too strong for her, that we will prevail. Revelation 12.12 gives the sense of the peril of the church. It says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. Notice, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, for he knows his time is short. And brothers and sisters, I ask you, how many perils does the church face today? We were talking to Brother Matt before service. Some of you that are teachers in our public school system. How many perils faces the church today? The culture, satanic culture, trying to weave its way into our children, into our churches, and take us away from a true confession of Jesus Christ. In other nations, we have persecution looming large where Christians have to hide themselves in secret to worship our living God. They can't have a Bible. And as the verse that's not in our hymn, the church is one foundation, by, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies oppressed. I mean, we see within our own body, don't we? Not just from the outside, but how many times is there they're false brothers False ideas that creep into the church that divide people away from one another. False ideas that take us away from glorying in Jesus Christ and glorying in something else. We have so many perils. If we're to sit and consider them, and I often do, it seems hopeless, doesn't it? But the assurance of our text is that no matter what we face and no matter how terrible and perilous Our plight might be in this world. Jesus Christ assures us that the church will never cease. There will never be a time on this planet where there will not be people who rightly confess that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, don't take that the wrong way. This church might cease tomorrow. The American church in a nation, the church might vanish out of a nation, a geographical region completely. But Christ's promise here is that the church itself will always prevail because he is the one who built it. The Father reveals this confession to us, and so therefore we rejoice in him alone. We rejoice that Christ builds the church and perseveres it. Preserves it, rather, probably. Preserves it from all of our perils. And so we ought to take heart, brothers and sisters. Jesus assures us that his people will never be destroyed. But he also assures us of one more thing today. He tells us that we ought to be assured of the divinely given authority to those who rightly confess Jesus. And like with the last point in verses 19 through 20, we have, to, we have to deal with some difficult language that we don't use in our modern churches, although we ought to. That is, notice, we have language of the keys of the kingdom being used. <clears throat> Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. (coughs) So, when we consider the keys of the kingdom that are given to Peter, ostensibly here, but as I would like to prove, this isn't just to Peter, but it is to the apostles, elders and teachers, and to the congregation of Christians itself. Keys are a symbol of authority, right? That's not hard for us to understand. In fact, going over this text with my family last night after dinner, uh, Charlotte even seemed to grasp the idea that the keys are authority, because what do keys do? I asked my young daughter, they lock things, right? Keys lock, and they unlock things. Whoever has a key has some authority over the thing that they're locking or unlocking, either to keep some out or to let some in, or contrarily, sometimes in the scripture, the keys are used to release provisions, okay? Provisions for the house. And so, these, biblically, keys can be either used by a steward to unlock or supply provisions or to lock and keep people out or to bring people in. Now, first, these symbols, these keys, are the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. Now, that might sound like a strange thing to say, but the preaching of the gospel, it it offers to sinners freely the ability to come into the kingdom of heaven. Come into the kingdom of heaven. Turn with me to John chapter 20. A text that would no doubt make evangelicals nervous, but this is the classic text that shows that the keys of the kingdom are first and foremost in the preaching of the gospel. This is after Christ's resurrection, appearing to the disciples. (coughs) Notice in verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said, sorry, when he had said this, he breathed on them. Okay, pneumos uh, breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold sins from any, they, it is withheld. Now, as soon as we read that, We get confused, which I understand, and say, is this saying that the apostles have some sort of popish pardoning power? Okay, excuse the three Ps there, I didn't plan that, okay? Uh, Some sort of popish pardoning power that whoever they want to, they can say, well, your sins are forgiven. And whoever they don't, whoever they have a grudge against, they can say, well, I refuse to forgive your sins. That's absolutely not what's being talked about here. What's being said here is in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if a sinner repents and comes to Christ, we can freely open the door to the kingdom of heaven and give them assurance. Okay? We can freely open the door to the kingdom of heaven and give them assurance. But if they refuse to believe, that door in the preaching of the gospel is locked. And we see them clearly that they are still under condemnation and they do not enter the kingdom. And what's fascinating here is that Peter is shown to be given these keys. And this is is the primary way that we see these keys used. Think of Acts chapter 2 with me. As Peter preaches the gospel, 
to these Jews, many of them, if not all of them, guilty in part of crucifying their Messiah. What do they say? They're cut to the heart. They say, men and brethren, what should we do? Peter operates the use of the keys of the kingdom. says, repent and be baptized. Not only that, he does baptize them, doesn't he? He, he, he doesn't wait two, three years to make sure that their fruit of their profession matches the confession of their heart. Peter preaches the gospel freely, and when sinners respond, he says, enter the kingdom of heaven. But in Acts chapter 8, do you remember Simon Magus? Okay. That Samaria is being converted. And Simon Magus, the magician, he sees the Holy Spirit being poured out. And he says, I want to give you some money so that I can do the same thing. I can give the Spirit to whomever I will. And Peter says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter locks it. Simon Magus, do not pretend that you are a Christian here. You think the gift of God freely given can be purchased with money. I can tell you of a surety that your heart is not right before God. This is the preaching of the gospel. And our Savior gives the authority, the preaching of the gospel to assure sinners of their salvation when they repent and to lock out those who are unrepentant. Second, these keys not only have reference to preaching the gospel, but membership in the local church. Membership in the local church. These keys are seen as symbols of church discipline, and we only need to turn over probably one page in your copy of the Scriptures to see this. A few months probably we'll see this. Matthew chapter 18, as we deal with church discipline, <coughs> Christ tells the disciples to go through the stages, to first go to their brother in private, then bring two or three with them, and finally to bring it to the church... Right? Notice in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, notice the similar language, shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. When people come to the church, the church, especially in our congregational polity, We have the authority to unlock the door to the kingdom of heaven and let some in to assure them of their profession of faith through membership. But those who are unrepentant, we lock the door and say, your your confession of faith, we um, we cannot assure you of your salvation any longer because you have lived in a way totally contrary to what the gospel says. Now, the reason why he gives these keys to Peter again is to assure us, to assure us of Christ's approval. So when we go and we present the gospel according to his word, when we do church discipline according to his word, we can be assured that divine approval is upon us. Now, we might say, well, who would need assurance like this? Like, of course, if we're going according to God's word, I'm assured that I'm doing the right thing. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, maybe I'm just, I know that I'm a very weak man. But in my own heart, I have many doubts about exercising the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And I'm I'm not ashamed to tell you, when when somebody comes to the church, okay, and I don't have anybody in mind, please believe me on that, and I'm nervous, like, 
this person doesn't seem to understand the gospel maybe right. I'm maybe concerned they have a legalistic spirit or whatever it might be. I will tell you and confess to you, sometimes I'm nervous to unlock that door even though they have a right confession of Jesus Christ. I know many of you have experienced the same thing. Church is difficult. Church is hard. To, To welcome a sinner merely because of their profession of faith? Scary. It's a scary thing. Now, there's also doubts of putting the unrepentant out, isn't there? Am I sure I'm making the right call on this? I'm a sinner. I'm, like Joey said to us, the most edifying thing I've heard all day, I'm the stupidest of all men, right? How can I be sure that I'm making the right call? This is given to us, brothers and sisters, to give us confidence. This ought to cause us to share the gospel boldly and freely with sinners, Not with all these asterisks, well, if you live a a really good life or if you, according to my own definition of repentance, then you can come. We share the gospel boldly. We welcome confessing sinners graciously. Isn't that what Romans 14 is all about? Yeah. Welcome the one who has scruples other than the ones that you have, but not to argue about opinions. In chapter 15, he says, welcome them as Christ welcomed you. Without qualification, without you needing to clean yourself up first, we need to welcome sinners graciously. And those who abandon their confession of faith through their life, through unrepentance, we need to deal with them with confidence. Because Christ has told us that He gives us the keys to the church. I don't have the keys to the church, I didn't make it up. But Christ assures us here. That he not only puts us in a blessed condition, he not only makes sure that his church is built and it will never fail, he gives the church confidence to do the duty that it's told to do, to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. So in conclusion today, (coughs) if we make right confession of Jesus Christ, which I believe everybody in this room does, then we must be confident that we are in a totally blessed condition that can be never taken away, that the Father's face shines upon us because He's illumined our heart to see the truth in Jesus Christ. We should be confident that the church will never pass away. And even personally, we can be confident that we will not enter death and hell will not swallow us alive because Christ has built us into His church and He has put us in Him. And thirdly, we have to be assured that as we go about to do the duties of the gospel, to preach and to keep the church pure in its confession and repentance, we have to have boldness in that because Christ, He's done it all for us and He oversees us, assures us even today that as we close our eyes to go to bed at night, as my daughter would, we're not to be concerning ourselves about will the church succeed? Did I do the right thing? Am I in the right state with God? Rather, we say, God's assured me of these things, and therefore I can close my eyes and sleep tonight. As we turn our eyes to the communion table, I I love the fact that the communion table is given for our assurance. And I know that seems strange to a lot of us because we haven't heard many things taught about communion probably in our previous church life, but the communion table is given to the, for the assurance of Christians. 
As Jesus Christ looked His disciples in the eye on that day, He told them to take this bread and He said, take, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.